Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is about the 1982 film Losing Ground, directed by Kathleen Collins. This is considered one of the first feature-length films directed by a black woman. I'm talking about this film as part of a series that I'm doing about debut feature films by women directors. This is not just Kathleen's first feature film. This was her last feature film. She died in 1988 before she could really create more films. And Losing Ground was lost to us for many years and and was not distributed until very recently. So... I'm going to give you an in-depth look at Kathleen's life and the process that it took for us to get Losing Ground and and her other work. She's also a writer and she wrote um, short stories and things like that. So I'm going to talk about her life, her work, and then I'm going to give you a very in-depth analysis and discussion of the film Losing Ground, which I think is extraordinary and important for so many reasons. Um, But it gives us a multidimensional and complex portrait of a black woman, and it looks at marriage, it looks at the conflict between the intellectual and the sensual that the main character has in the film, because she's very within her own head, and she's looking for something that I think reconnects her with her body, and so there's so much to talk about with this film. It's a dreamy, beautiful film, beautiful colors and light. I really love this film, and I'm happy to be able to talk about it, and I'm happy to talk about Kathleen Collins and to highlight her work and give her work the attention and the praise that it deserves. And so I hope that you'll stay with me and that you'll listen to this full episode and and everything that I have to say about Kathleen and Losing Ground. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis and also access rewards and extras like many episodes. Um, I have dozens at this point of extra episodes about Films by all kinds of directors, from Agnes Varda to Douglas Sirk to Francois Truffaut. So you can get all of that through Patreon at a certain level if you'd like to hear my thoughts about more films. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. So I'd like to give a shout out to my wonderful patrons, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle and Lindsay, thank you all so much for being patrons. You really do make this podcast possible. If financial support is not an option for you, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, especially iTunes. It helps it get better placement in the directory, which can help more people discover the podcast, which I would really love. So if you have a moment, please rate the podcast. I 
it's very important to me. If you do leave a review, I may read it on the podcast. So you can be part of an episode if you leave a review and I will read it. You can tell your friends and followers about this podcast um, and the work I'm doing. Or you could send an encouraging message to me. I love hearing from y'all. Um, I'm on Facebook at Her Head and Films. And you can see all my social media accounts listed in the show notes or description of each episode. I've wanted to talk about Kathleen Collins for a long time. I've been interested in her work and I've been interested in her story. I'm talking about her film Losing Ground as part of an ongoing series that I'm doing about the debut feature films by women directors. In the case of Kathleen Collins, this is not only her first debut feature film, um, this is really one of the first feature films ever directed by a black woman. So it's a very important film in that regard. It's her first feature film, and it's really her only feature film. And so she is an important person in the history of cinema. And she's a person who for decades has languished in obscurity. Her work was not released theatrically. theatrically. Um, she's someone who in many ways was forgotten by time for a long time until the last few years have seen has seen a big resurgence in interest in her work and in the distribution of her work, both as a writer and as a filmmaker. So she's really a central figure. And on this podcast, in the work I do with cinema, something that is profoundly important to me, something that I am very passionate about, that is really vital and essential to what I'm doing as someone who is exploring cinema is to take forgotten women out of the shadows to talk about women filmmakers who have been forgotten, who have been erased, who have been marginalized and to with my small platform and my small voice in the world of cinema to put them front and center. And so this episode could be your introduction to Kathleen Collins. This could be the first time that you're hearing her name. And I feel a great deal of responsibility for that. And so I do want to talk a bit about her life and her work, her biography. I want to give you context. Um, so before I get into my analysis and discussion of Losing Ground, I want to talk about Kathleen Collins as an artist, a filmmaker, a person and share with you things that I've discovered in my research about her. And because um, I do realize that for some of you, this is the first time you're hearing about her. And this is um, this is your introduction to her work and her life. On the other hand, some of you may know a great deal about her and you've already seen Losing Ground. As I record this episode, it's April of 2018. Losing Ground is streaming on Filmstruck right now, and I urge you to watch it if you have a Filmstruck subscription. It is set to expire on that website in July of 2018, so there's not much time. This is your chance to see it, and um, I definitely urge you to do that. 
So Kathleen Collins was born in 1942 in New Jersey. She died in 1988 of breast cancer at the age of 46. So she is a person who died young. Um, this is a recurring thing when I talk about a lot of forgotten or obscure women directors because I've devoted a few episodes to women directors who are maybe not as well known. I did that in my episode about Barbara Loden's film Wanda. Now Barbara Loden died in 1980 at the age of 48. She died in her 40s. I talked about Larissa Shapitko in another episode of the podcast. She is a Soviet director, and she died in 1979 at the age of 41. So something that these three women share, Kathleen Collins, Larissa Shapitko, and Barbara Loden, is not only that their work has really been overshadowed and their contributions have been erased, but that they actually died young. They died in their 40s. And this obviously affected what they were able to do, that they didn't get a lot of time. And so they didn't get to make a lot of films. And what films they did make have not gotten the kind of attention that they deserve. So as I said Kathleen Collins's film, Losing Ground, is one of the first feature films directed by a black woman, if not the first. Um, I've seen it phrased in different ways as one of the first black women to direct a feature film or the first. So um, she's an important figure and it's sort of um, shocking the obscurity that she has languished in for, the, for all these years. But finally she's getting the recognition that she absolutely deserves. So um, Kathleen Collins is a really fascinating person. In her youth, she was very involved in the civil rights movement. Um, she was part of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC. She organized voter registration um, in the South that was uh going through Jim Crow and segregation and terrible um, terror and violence against African Americans. Um, so she was involved in that in the 1960s. And I'll talk um, later on about her short story collection that came out recently called Whatever Happened to Interracial Love, which I read a few years ago uh, when it came out, and I was really impressed by it. Um, in the 1960s, she also got her master's in French literature and cinema. So she is um, a very erudite person, highly intellectual. And this is what you will see reflected in Losing Ground, because Losing Ground is about a philosophy professor. Um, and it's it mirrors some of Kathleen Collins's own life. She um, had a great affinity for Eric Romay, um, the New Wave director. I also really love Eric Romay. And things about Losing Ground have sort of been compared a bit to Eric Romay and to his work. And she did say that he was a big influence on her. And um, this is what Sight and Sound magazine says. They quote her as saying, quote, That's the only person who's ever influenced me cinematically. 
because of his respect for language, unquote. So in Kathleen Collins, I think we have a really fascinating person where we really have someone who's marrying the literary with the cinematic. And we really have a thinking director and a very intellectual director. And um, you definitely see that reflected in Losing Ground. She also worked as a translator for Cahiers du Cinema uh, in, the, in the 1960s. So she was um, really immersed in the world of cinema, right? And um, it's, it's heartbreaking, I think, um, that she didn't get to make more films, that she didn't have the opportunities and things like that. And I will talk about that in a little while about women directors and what they face and especially obviously a black woman and and how hard it is to break into the business and and to make films and to get them distributed and financed and all of that so um and everything that I cite in this episode will be listed in the show notes or in the description it depends on what, um, where you're listening to the podcast. Sometimes the description will have everything listed. And then sometimes you'll see a link that says, here are the show notes. So Sight and Sound had a, a, has a really great article about Kathleen Collins. And I'll definitely link to it in, uh, in the description in the show notes of the episode. Um, so this is a woman who, in her short time did so much. She's involved in the civil rights movement. She's going to Paris and she's getting her masters, you know, in um in French literature. She's writing short stories. She's uh directing a feature film. She is profoundly um engaged in all these different art forms. And I just find that really amazing. You know, I, I, she, you can tell that she's someone who is very creative, very in touch with her imagination and her intellect. Um, there's a really great article um, in Vogue magazine, and I read it um, originally a few, like a year or two ago. And it's by Nina Collins, who is the daughter of Kathleen. And it's very insightful, and it gives us so inform so much information about what Kathleen was like. But it's also a really complicated essay that Nina's writing because, on the one hand, she's talking about her mother's legacy and how important it is, and how she's trying to continue her mother's legacy and keep her work alive. And yet she's also trying to come to terms with her very complicated relationship with her mother. And that's, that's normal. You know, every daughter has a complex relationship with her mother. And I respect Nina immensely for being able to be honest about it, you know, of, of what she went through with her mother a bit, because Kathleen was a complicated person and that's okay. We're all complicated, you know, and, um, so you can tell that Nina has so much admiration for Kathleen, but also that there are things about Kathleen that she struggles with. And um, so Nina was still a teenager when Kathleen died. And Nina actually had to take care of her younger brother. At the time, Kathleen was a single mother. She had split from uh, Nina's father. And um, so... 
Nina really writes about that a bit. Um, And she also says that Kathleen was, quote, vibrant yet frequently depressed and unwavering in her commitment to her work, unquote. She actually didn't tell anybody about her illness. She didn't tell anybody really that she was dying um, until two weeks before she died. That's what Nina tells us. And um, so her death was obviously very difficult um, for the family. And um, something that comes through about Kathleen in this piece is that she is someone who's vibrant, who's very alive, um, who's very engaged with art and dedicated profoundly to art. But it also sounds like she was also struggling with her own demons of depression and mental illness. And um, as Nina says, she was frequently depressed. And she's also a single mother and she's trying to create art and raise her children. And I can't imagine, you know, how difficult that must have been for Kathleen. Um, she was also a professor. She um, she taught um, at, at a university and, and st- things like that. So she's just this fascinating woman, um, all that she was able to do. And she just seemed like she was filled with so much art and there was so much that she wanted to do. And of course, she just wasn't given all the time, I think, that she needed. And... Um, And obviously, because she was a black woman, her work was not distributed the way it was, it should have been. She did not receive the support she should have received and really sort of languished in obscurity, you know. Um, Although Losing Ground, I think, did get a bit of attention and it was popular in festivals and things like that. So when Kathleen died, um, Nina basically took all of her documents and everything, you know, short stories, screenplays, letters, tapes, the VHS tapes of the two films that she did make. One was a short film um, less than an hour long called The Cruise Brothers and Miss Malloy. And then there's Losing Ground, which is her first and her only feature film. So it's just, it's so interesting that her entire life, I mean, everything that she had created really gets consigned literally, you know, to a box <laughs> and and um, into the steamer trunk that Nina keeps and, and that Nina takes with her, you know, when she travels. Um, and then she was finally able to get more attention for her mother's work. And she says something very interesting about Kathleen. She says, quote, she was always in her own head, unquote. Kathleen sounds like um, someone who was just always in her own mind and seemed like she had this very rich um, inner life, you know, like most artists do. Um, And that is something that will recur in Losing Ground because it is about... A character, um, this philosophy professor, Sarah, um, and how she is so intellectual and so within her own mind all the time, and how she sort of longs to escape that. She longs to connect with the sensual, with the ecstatic, with the bodily, you know, and the corporeal beyond just the mind. 
And so I thought that was a really interesting thing for Nina to write that Kathleen really lived inside her own head. And um, Kathleen first got her, got a, a diagnosis of cancer when she was 37. And Nina tells us that she tried to take care of it homeopathically. She did not get chemotherapy or any kind of Western mainstream medicine for years, it sounds like. Um, she really didn't get chemotherapy, Nina tells us, until the last months that she was living. And by this time, this was like the third time that the cancer had come back. And this is something that Nina acknowledges in the piece that she struggles with, that if she had gotten chemotherapy and radiation sooner, perhaps when she got that first diagnosis, could she have lived longer? You know, could it have made a difference? And so that is an example of her struggling also with her, with the decision, some of the decisions her mother made. And um, she obviously loves her mother deeply, uh, but she does wonder about that. She does struggle with that a little bit of, could it have made a difference? Could it have prolonged her life? And unfortunately, she can't talk to Kathleen about it, and which is really heartbreaking. But um, we, we should be very, very thankful for a, dis, um, a film distribution company called Milestone Films. And they're exceptional. Um, I really love them. You know, in the world of art house cinema, there is the Criterion Collection. That sort of gets all of the glory and all of the attention. And they do great work, but there's also other distribution companies that do important work um, when it comes to preserving cinema and cinema history. And I would say Milestone Films is really important to that. They have Kathleen Collins's work. Um, they have preserved... Um, losing ground thankfully and you can go to their website and buy a dvd of her of her film they also have done some stuff with shirley clark um portrait of jason which is a really great film so milestone films has all kinds of great stuff another one that i've gotten kind of interested in is flicker alley they have a lot of like older like silent films they have this um really fascinating uh anthology of women filmmakers of early women filmmakers um there's kino lorber they do a lot of good stuff so there's other distribution companies out there who do some really great work preserving films and making sure that um we have these films for a long time and thankfully bless them they, they have preserved Losing Ground, and they've also brought it to a larger audience, making it available on DVD for people. And um, there was also, um, at Lincoln Center, there was a film festival that focused on black independent movies, and Losing Ground was part of that festival, um, and, and that was a few years ago, and that also helped put Kathleen Collins back into the spotlight and there were all kinds of um, sort of glowing positive reviews of Losing Ground and it put it back into the public consciousness again and also um, her short story collection was recently published probably around 2016-2017 
Um, and it's called Whatever Happened to Interracial Love. And it's a collection of short stories. And I read it when it first came out. Because anytime I hear, oh, here's this female filmmaker that not a lot of people know about. Oh, and she also wrote short stories. Well, I'm immediately interested. And so I got very interested in Kathleen's story and learning more about her and reading her work. Um, so I thought these stories were very good and I really enjoyed the collection. Um, some of the stories are about her participation in the Freedom Summer when she was part of um, SNCC and her experience of being in the civil rights movement, movement in the 1960s. So it's very interesting how her work really gets rediscovered um, in the wake of Black Lives Matter to a certain extent. I mean, I'm not connecting the two necessarily, but I think that this is a ripe time. This is a fertile time in the wake of, the, of um, Black Lives Matter, in the wake of the Me Too movement. This is fertile, a fertile time for us to talk more about women filmmakers and especially black women filmmakers and to refocus on their work, not just the ones that we've lost, you know, and trying to preserve their legacy, but how do we create a future where more black women are financed, supported, distributed? How do we do that? You know, we have Ava DuVernay, we have Dee Reese. You know, we're trying to get more of that because there's so few of them, you know. Um, so I think that Kathleen Collins's work and her short stories too, not just Losing Ground, I think, um, I think her work resonates more because of some things that have happened the last few years um, where we are looking more seriously at race and gender especially. Um, and that gives her stories, you know, when she's talking about the civil rights movement and the freedom summer, and then we see what's happening with black lives matter and the activism that has really been galvanized in the wake of the death of black people at the hands of police officers, you know, police officers murdering black people. Um, we see that and we see obviously the election of Donald Trump and, so um, when we're talking about civil rights and we're talking about these things, like history is now, you know, um, the civil rights movement in the 1960s doesn't seem so far away and remote anymore because we are still continuing those struggles. That activism has to continue because there is still terrible inequality and racism. So, um so some of the, the stories are about her participation in the civil rights movement, but others are about love and about relationships, which is really what Losing Ground is about. It's about a marriage. It's about a man and woman and their conflicts. And it's interesting because I really don't think I've talked about a film about a marriage on the podcast yet. I don't really watch films about love and marriage. It's not what I tend to watch. But, um, but that is a big part of losing ground. And that's a big part of her short story collection. My favorite, um, story, and I will say that the film, that the stories are about love. Um, there's one story about a student that falls in love with her French professor and, um, and things like that. But my favorite story in the collection was called the uncle. 
Um, and it's about a narrator with an uncle who struggles with depression. And the way that Collins describes that struggle um, was very resonant and very empathetic. And um, it made me think that obviously, in light of what Nina wrote in Vogue, that Kathleen herself struggled with struggled with depression, that perhaps some of that um, comes from her own experiences. Um, Collins's characters in this short story collection are intellectual. They're young. They're politically engaged. They're curious about other cultures. They're interested in loving and and having relationships with other with people of other races which obviously you know back in the 60s the 70s the 80s that was a radical thing you know it, it just was um if you want to know more about the struggles that interracial re- um relationships encountered you should see loving the movie loving which is about um, a couple with the last name Loving who um, he was white and she was black or she was biracial and um, they went through terrible things to try to get married and there's also a really great documentary called The Loving Story which is about that. that. So interracial relationships were very controversial. I would argue they still are in in certain parts of of the country um in in the south and and places like that um so her characters are interested in crossing those lines of difference um and engaging with people who are other people who are different from them you know um coming closer together that's the sense i got from these stories is about young, vibrant, intellectual, politically engaged people. Um, I really feel like her stories capture a moment, a time in history when the mores were changing, the convention, the conventions were changing, and the possibilities I think seemed much more infinite. You know, when when the youth, especially, were saying, "We're not going to be segregated anymore." We're going to fight this and um, we're going to fight for our civil rights and, and stand up for all of that. And of course, Kathleen Collins is not just a filmmaker, not just a writer, but she herself is also an activist. And she was part of all of those struggles. And I think if she was alive today, she would absolutely be part of Black Lives Matter. She would absolutely be part of these social movements that are calling for justice and accountability and equality and all of that. So um, I want to talk a few moments about really the plight of forgotten women directors. This is a really important thing to me. And as I said before, I try to use the podcast to spotlight different women um, who I feel like don't get enough attention. And a lot of the women directors that I've talked about on the podcast, um, whether it be Barbara Loden or Larissa Shapitko or even somebody like Joanna Hogg, who is also part of my series on debut feature films by women directors. These are women who are sort of not that well known and are kind of marginalized to a certain extent. Because we know that women have faced huge amounts of discrimination in the film industry. 
that it has been very difficult for women to get films made. And Hollywood and the film industry has been so dominated by men for so long. Now, in the early days of cinema, during silent cinema, from what I've read, and I'm not a film historian and I don't have a background in film studies, but I have seen a few things that talked about how when film first began, you know, in the early, you know, the late 1890s and the early 1900s, women were part of that era. We have Alice Guy Blachet, who's considered one of the first um, or the first female filmmaker ever. And she was a French director with really wonderful films. And um, so we have Alice Guy Blachet. We have um, Lois Weber. We have um, someone named Frances Marion, who I don't know if she was a director, but she wrote a lot of films and she was very active in cinema. So in the early days of cinema, before it became so big and became an industry there were much many more women involved in it and women were also involved in the labor of early cinema um for instance silent films some of them were not just in black and white some of them were colorized and they were hand tinted and hand painted by women by women workers who did that um it was very laborious and um, sort of tedious. They would go frame by frame and, and paint them and, and tint them. And they give those films such a dreamy, otherworldly sort of look about them. It's really fascinating if you do see sort of a hand-tinted silent film. Um, so women have always been part of cinema. And often their labor has gone unrecognized, obviously. But I think with the Me Too movement, which it's hard to believe it only happened in late 2017, that now we're in, you know, April 2018 as I record this episode, and it's only been a few months, really. And it's not like it just happened with the Me Too movement. I think in the last few years, a lot more people, there have been a lot more initiatives to talk about women in the film industry. I, th I think there was some kind of investigation into it, too, because the numbers are so low in terms of women directors. And we see it at the Oscars, too, where, like, one woman has won the Best Director um, Oscar, like Catherine Bigelow did. Um, so this is a big problem. It is a huge problem of women not being part of the film industry and not being given the same opportunities as men, whether it's screenwriting or directing or, you know, anything like that. It's a huge problem. And, but something that I've been thinking about a lot more since the meme Too movement started. And of course it began with this, um, with these allegations against Harvey Weinstein, um, of, you know, allegations of rape and sexual assault and sexual harassment. And um, it's just been so fast and furious in terms of how quickly this has unfolded. But something I've been thinking so much about is how men have shaped and dominated and controlled cinema for a century now that 
men have determined what art is, what the art form of cinema is, what it should look like, what a good film looks like. And Harvey Weinstein was part of that. Harvey Weinstein used his cachet as an art house distributor. That's what he was known for. That's what Miramax was known for in the 1990s, um, was their distribution of sort of art house films. They were known for their films winning Oscars, their films being seen as the creme de la creme of cinema, that this is what great film looks like. And all too often, that was films obviously directed by men. That's how it, it's always been, you know, for decades and decades now. But um, he used that. He used that to really shield himself, you know. Um, he was so entrenched, really, in the art house world. And, um, you know, if he released a film, then it was seen as great cinema. It was seen as, well, this is what a great film looks like. This is what it is. And so... um. Harvey Weinstein's not the only person, obviously, who has shaped our taste and shaped what we consider a great film or what we consider art house to be or what we consider art to be in terms of cinema. So um, what I'm trying to say is that what could cinema be now? What could it have been if more women had been involved in it? If we'd had more Kathleen Collinses and more Julie Dashes and more um, Barbara Lodens and Larissa Shapitkos, our whole concept of cinema, in a way, has really been shaped by patriarchy and has been shaped by men. Men dominate the film review world. You know, when you look at Rotten Tomatoes, a lot of those reviews are written by men. So the way we evaluate cinema, the way we think of cinema, what is considered great cinema, has been profoundly shaped by men and by white men. And the people who have been given the opportunity to make films, the people who have been put on a pedestal as the greats and the geniuses, have been white men. And so... How many films have we lost out on? How many... How, like, how much have we lost out on? Because Kathleen Collins didn't get to make more films and Barbara Loden didn't get to make more films. We are impoverished because of it. Because we lost out on so much. And we're still losing out on so much. That we don't have more films by Kathleen Collins or other or Julie Dash or, you know, um, that's what I'm trying to say is that we are missing something. That there is this gaping hole in cinema, in the history of cinema, where all these forgotten, obscure, lost, marginalized women are. You know, and what some of us are doing, what I'm trying to do in my little way through this podcast, through her head and films, is to redirect our gaze and redirect our attention back to some of those women, back to Barbara Loden, back to Larissa Shapitko, back to Kathleen Collins, and say their contributions mattered too. And what a shame. What a. What, I mean, 
what an impoverishment, what a loss that we didn't get more films by them. And the and all the women who were like them, you know, think of what cinema could have been if more black women had been able to make films that it took until the 1980s for one of the first feature films to be made by a black woman. 80 some years into the art form of cinema. So we have 80 years in which black women are not part of that history. That they are not allowed in to the detriment of cinema, to the detriment of this art form. All the richness we missed out on, all the stories we lost out on. I mean, my God, it's shocking when you think about it, that for 80-some years, black women were not able to make feature-length films. I mean, I, I don't even know what to say. I don't, it, it, it is further proof, obviously, of the devaluation of black women's lives that that we're almost a century into this art form and their contributions are not allowed and that they're still barely there. You know, we have Ava DuVernay, we have Dee Reese, we have Julie Dash, we have some really wonderful black women who are making films and creating cinema. But my God... All those decades and decades when when they're when they were not able to to do that and not allowed um that really doesn't get talked about enough obviously and it it's connected to racism obviously and sexism and misogyny and all of that and um it's just another example of the way that racism and sexism, and obviously their intersection for the lives of black women, um, how destructive it is, you know, um, for all of us, um, obviously for black women's lives, um, but also for just humanity, that here are these vibrant, creative, wonderful, talented women like Kathleen Collins and we get one film one or two films from her and um so many other women who made film who did make films that did not get the kind of attention and distribution that they should have gotten and so we have to keep fighting for this more women making films more black women more black men you know more minorities um, more people of color involved in the film industry and involved in cinema. This is vital. This is important. This matters. Um, so, Kathleen is just a fascinating, important person. I'm really glad that I can use an episode to talk about her. Um, and you know, in his review in The New Yorker, Richard Brody wrote that, quote, had it screened widely in its time, it would have marked film history, unquote. And he's talking about losing ground. Um, this is a film that should have been more widely seen, should have been distributed, and um, 
when these films are not seen and these films are not valued, it affects the art form of cinema, you know. It Losing ground absolutely should be remembered, it should be watched, it should be talked about, and um, that's what I'm going to do. So we're going to talk, I'm going to talk about this film and um, share everything that I think about it. And I hope that you find this discussion um, valuable and enriching in some way. And I think Kathleen's life is so important. And I'm really glad that I was able to give you a little bit of context and a little biographical information um, because I do think that Kathleen's life is connected to the film itself, Losing Ground. And she does take a bit from her life and it is somewhat autobiographical in a way, but she obviously takes that material and does a lot with it and um, really goes beyond the personal to create a really gorgeous, beautiful, um, important and historic film. I loved Losing Ground so much. I watched it for this episode, but I've been interested in Kathleen Collins for quite a few years. I just never got around to watching Losing Ground. And as soon as I saw that it was on Filmstruck and that it was going to be available for streaming on a service that I already use, I knew that this was my chance. This was my opportunity to really talk about the film and about Kathleen Collins. And it just so happens that I have this podcast and I can share all this with more people beyond just myself. So I adored the film. I thought it was just gorgeous. Um, I fell in love with it as I was watching it. And a few themes that I want to talk about. Um, I want to talk about how this film represents a black woman and how it is very unique in that representation. I want to talk about... Also, how it's representing a very intellectual woman and her search for something beyond the intellectual. Because she's very academic. She's very within her own mind. And she's actually researching ecstasy. And she, I think over the course of the film, is sort of connecting with her sensuality in a way. I want to talk about how this film looks at marriage and infidelity, but especially marriage and the relationship between a man and woman, the conflict that happens, especially when you're talking about two people who are artists, who are thinkers, and how that relationship can be sort of tumultuous and complicated. I also want to talk about the look of this film, which is just so dreamy and beautiful. So there's a lot that I want to dig into. First, what I think makes this film incredibly groundbreaking, not just that it's one of the first feature films directed by a black woman, but in her representation of a black woman in the film. Um, I don't need to tell any of you that cinema has not been kind to black women. Um, to minorities in general. Um, I'm not the first to say this. We know this. Uh, This is always my conflict as a cinephile, is that I love film. 
I love cinema. But it has also been a really damaging art form, even from its early days. When you think about something like D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation, which promoted incredibly harmful stereotypes about black people um, and actually led to the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, there's a really great documentary streaming on Netflix right now in the United States called Birth of a Movement, and I highly recommend it to you. It's a documentary about um, the African Americans who protested the birth of a nation when it first came out, and um, the activism that that was created around this film. So we've heard for years about the birth of a nation, how controversial it was, how disgusting it was in its racism, how it led to the rebirth of the KKK. But I don't think we've really heard that other story about the resistance to the film, the protest against the film that was led by African Americans in the country. So Birth of a Movement on Netflix in the United States, I highly recommend it. I saw it, I think I saw it last year or something um, on PBS. That was when it where it first came on and um, I was really impressed by it and I highly recommend that film to you. But throughout the history of cinema, there's been really damaging stereotypes about black people, about people of color, about Asian people, you know, all, all kinds of different groups in the country. You know, I still cringe when I see Breakfast at Tiffany's and there's this um, uh, Mickey Rooney playing an Asian man. It's incredibly offensive. Um, so while I, I am very aware of my situation as a white viewer as a white cinema goer that when I watch a, a particular film it doesn't I'm gonna have a different experience of it than someone who is black or Asian when I watch Gone with the Wind you know I don't have to personally deal with the representation of Hattie McDaniel in that film um as a servant and, and all of that. Um, so I think it's important to acknowledge our different positions, right? And our different viewpoints. And, and it's, I think it's also really important to try to understand different viewpoints and understand that when you watch a film, you may really love it and it may be moving to you and inspirational to you. But on the other hand, for other people, it may be insulting and offensive and hurtful, actually. Um, so that's important to keep in mind. And I know that I am a white woman talking about this film, and I'm trying to talk about the film in a sensitive way and in a complex way. This I admire this film. I admire Kathleen Collins. And so I hope that that comes through in this for you. But I also realize my own position in all of this. So there are there are several stereotypes of black women that have permeated cinema and television and all different forms of media. And I did some reading and these are about the three basic stereotypes that you'll see. The first is the mammy, which is usually the servant character. You know, think of most recently the help. 
with um, Viola Davis and Octavia Spencer. I, I do not like that film. I know that it got Octavia her Oscar, and I do realize that the film put Octavia and Viola on the map in, in a cert, to a certain extent. And I love Viola Davis. I think she is magnificent. Um, but I just, it's so unfortunate, I think, that this film is was sort of their breakthrough. But it is sort of, it is a mammy um, representation. It's this, uh, a black woman as a servant in a servile position to white people. Um, think of Hattie McDaniel in Gone with the Wind. That's another example. The second stereotype that you'll often see is the Jezebel, which is this very sexualized representation of black women. And we still see this, I think. Um, women of color do often tend to be hypersexualized in our culture. And then there is the sapphire stereotype. This is the third one. And it, it's, it represents black women as angry and rude and um, sort of bitchy and, and all of that. And it's very negative. Um, I think maybe Precious would be an example of that. Perhaps Precious's mother, um, the one that Monique, the character that Monique plays possibly, that would be considered a sapphire. So it's these stereotypes that deny black women their humanity and their complexity as people. Because black women, just like white women, just like, um, you know, women, all women of different women of color and uh, different groups of women are complicated. They're flawed and um, there's so much to them. But often in cinema, um, we only get one representation or just a few. And they all tend to be dehumanizing and, and hurtful and really harmful these representations have real life consequences. You know, when we see black women talked about in certain ways, you know, in the political arena, think of, you know, Reagan and the welfare queen stereotype. This had a material impact on the lives of, of various people. So um, these, these representations do matter and they are hurtful. So What's really radical and important, partly about losing ground, is that it resists all of these uh, stereotypes of black women. It does not use them. This film was written, directed, and produced by Kathleen Collins. And it's a very unique representation of a black woman. She's a philosophy professor. I don't know that we have that many um, representations of black women as teachers, as intellectuals, um, as artists. You know, it just, it seems very rare. And I didn't realize how rare it was until I was watching this. I was like, why do we not see black women like this? Um, it's very strange. You know, it's obviously a product of racism. So our main character is Sarah Rogers, and she teaches um, philosophy, and she's actually talking about existentialism when the film opens, and she's talking about how it was a reaction to the horrors of World War II, that this sense of absurdity and, and things like that. I don't know a ton about existentialism. They were saying a lot of stuff that was, like, over my head. Um, so, um, 
but that's how it opens. So we already know from the beginning that we are encountering a character who is deeply intellectual and um, deeply philosophical and a very deep thinker. Um, Sarah is married to Victor, and I forgot to mention that Sarah is played by Saray Scott in the film, and that her and Kathleen were friends. And her husband, Victor, is played by Bill Gunn, who was also um, a director himself. And he's a painter. So we have this very intellectual couple. And I myself really kind of love films about intellectuals. I love films about really smart people. And I like films about artists and writers. Because Sarah is also a writer. She's working on her thesis. And... um so I love films like that. I love films about intellectuals and people who are really part of the literary and artistic world. I guess in my mind, that's sort of the world that I wish I was part of, but that I'm certainly not. Um, so good things are happening for Victor. A museum has bought some of his paintings to add to their permanent collection. Um, so things are going really well for him, but summer is approaching. I guess summer vacation is coming up for them, and um, he wants to go to upstate New York. He, We see him up there for a little while, for a day or something. He's sort of walking around. He sees women outside, and this is sort of like a Puerto, a Puerto Rican area, um, and he walks around and he sees women like out on their porches or looking out of a window and he sketches them and, and paints them and things like that. And this is when we really start to see the aesthetic beauty of this film. That was what sort of enraptured me. Um, you know, sometimes films just capture you visually. And for me, that was this, this was that kind of film. There is a beautiful light about it. Um, it's really the light of dusk. It, it feels to me like everything in this film happens around dusk. And it has that rosy, golden light about it that I can't describe. That you really only see in summertime. The only thing that really comes close to it is... It reminded me a bit of Abbas Kurostami's Taste of Cherry. In my episode about that film, I talked about sort of the pink light in that film. The rosy dusky light um, in the film and there is something about that too in Losing Ground and obviously the visual um, look also reminds me of Eric Romay you know if you watch his films you know Claire's Knee and La Collection News and I don't even know if I'm saying that right I'm not French um, what else have I seen of his and I, I love Claire's Knee that's a big film for me um, I've seen My Night at Mauds, but that's in black and white. But if you've seen any of Eric Romay's summer films, um, you can tell she was a bit inspired by him. But obviously the film is her own and, and has its own look to it. But you can tell that she was a great admirer of Romay, I think. And she sets it in the summertime, and a lot of, quite a few of Romay's films were set in the summertime, too. I still need to explore more of his work, actually. So Victor wants to go to upstate New York for their vacation, but um, Sarah 
is worried about that because she needs to be close to a library and so the area where he would want to stay I, they really just have like this little lending library where she wouldn't really be able to get the books that she needs for her thesis because she is in a really serious thesis that I'm going to talk about in a moment so they already start to clash over this in a way um because he wants to go there she doesn't he's very inspired by that area and obviously inspired by the beautiful women that he saw and um he wants to do more art inspired by that area but she wants to continue her intellectual work and so she needs the books for that now of course they end up going to upstate new york for their vacation and it sort of reminded me a lot how women often have to capitulate to the demands and the needs of men that even today this happens that often women have to accommodate men and that men's needs are prioritized over women's needs and so um i thought i i think this film is a really interesting look at the dynamics between men and women you know and um the so there's obviously an examination of gender in there of you know he wins in the end the man always wins really and women often have to capitulate to their needs so sarah's thesis is very interesting and um we hear a little bit about it in one scene where she talks about it and she says that She's writing about, quote, the religious boundaries around ecstasy are too narrow, unquote. And she talks about how ecstasy is energy. So it's really deep. <laughs> I don't totally understand it, but um, she's in search of ecstasy. She's in search of an experience with the ecstatic. And, um, you know, her husband, Victor, is engaged in art. And art, I think, is more connected to the emotion to the to the emotional to the feeling to the intangible and perhaps the ecstatic you know when he sees a, a beautiful woman or he sees something that he wants to paint I guess you could possibly argue that that is an example of a experience of the ecstatic that he feels something when he's painting these things and she's very different than that you know she's intellectual and in her head and not quite as connected to the ecstatic and i i think that is possibly why she is doing her thesis on it so they go to their house in upstate new york during the summertime he goes around painting and sketching some of his friends are there his mentor is there um but he's actually pulling away from that mentor more. And um, he's more interested in the abstract than the figurative. And he talks about that, that he feels more purely abstract. And I think that could possibly also connect to the ecstatic, you know, that he's trying to represent something, something more connected to the emotional or or whatever's within his head and whatever he sees. But, um, and there's a very interesting scene one night where he's sketching her and he says that she has a cold analytical face. 
And I think this also connects to the ongoing representation of Sarah as very intellectual, as very sort of inside her mind. Um, So when he describes her that way, he's really saying that she's not connected to the sensual, that she's not connected to ecstasy or anything like that. And she obviously does not like him saying that. And when he's painting, or not painting her, but I guess sketching her, they joke. I mean, they still laugh. And there's a really beautiful rapport between the two of them, sort of this push and pull where at times there's that conflict between them. And then at times they're very loving with each other. So this is also a representation of um, a tender, loving relationship between black people. I mean, how many times do we really get to see that? That was something that I talked a bit about in my review of Moonlight by Barry Jenkins. Um, I talked about um, the relationship um, between the main character and the Mahershala Ali uh, figure who played like a father figure. Um and how you don't often see these positive portrayals of black men, of black fatherhood. Um, And I would argue something similar with the representation of Sarah and Victor's relationship, that at times it's tumultuous (laughs) and tempestuous, obviously, but then at other times it's really loving and they kiss each other and they hold each other. And that's really important. Um, often we get lots of representations of black pain, of black people hurting, whether it's films set in the times of slavery or films that are maybe more connected to the civil rights movement. Um, we don't get a lot of films about black people just living their lives. It's always connected to some kind of pain or torment Um, and of course those stories are important I don't want us to forget slavery I don't want us to forget the civil rights movement I don't want us to forget the terrible atrocities that have been uh, perpetrated against African Americans in this country but I also want to see representations of black joy and black love, and ecstasy, right, and tenderness, and um, I want to, I want a more complex view of that, and that, this film gives us that, it gives us a warm and tender, but complicated and complex relationship between two black artists, two black intellectuals, so I think I think that's important, that representation. I love the passion and intimacy between them, the sense of a genuine partnership, a genuine meeting of equals, even though they do clash, even though she does capitulate to his needs, as most women tend to do with men. Um, you know, even in my own life that happens. So it, it's something that women do have to deal with. And I come back still to the dreaminess of this film. It's just these the scenes where she, where he was painting her, and just as Sarah walks around, she I want to talk about the fashion for a minute. I love the fashion in this film. It was 1982, so really we're at the beginning of the 80s. We're the the fashion to me felt still sort of kind of 70s, where you have these 
sort of peasant blouses and these really billowy, um, romantic, uh, dresses that Sarah wears. And, um, I love the fashion. There's this beautiful scene where she's like, she puts a flower in her hair and she just looks so beautiful. I loved her fashion. And, um, just the way the women in general in this film dress later on, there's a character named Celia and she dresses in a similar way, very romantic, very pretty. And, um, I, I just love the way they dressed. <laughs> I, I notice stuff like that. I love fashion in film. And, um, it also, I think it, it's interesting because she's very intellectual, but then she wears these very romantic kind of clothes. And I think it, sort of shows us that there are these other depths to her. There's this other side of her that is romantic and emotional and feeling. And maybe some of that comes out through her fashion before it comes out externally. But she, but Saray Scott just looks gorgeous in this film and the dreaminess of the film and that summer light New York in the 1980s. There's something about films about New York in the 1970s and the 1980s that it's the light or something. I don't know what it is. Um, although I saw something kind of similar with Paris is Burning by Jenny Livingston, which I also have an episode about on the podcast. Um, which if you haven't seen Paris is Burning, it's a really great film. It's about um, the ball culture of New York City. I think it came out in 1990. And there are some scenes in that film where they're just in New York City and it's like evening, it's like dusk, and there's this beautiful pink light about it. I've never been to New York City. I live in the South, as you can tell by my accent. Um, <laughs> I'm very Southern sounding. Um, I've never been to New York City, so I don't know if this light still exists, but it's so beautiful in these different films. It reminded me of a film called Los... Los Sures or Los Sures. Um, I know I'm saying it wrong. And it's from 1984. It's directed by Diego Echeverria. And um, it's about this. It was called the neighborhood itself was in uh, New York City. And um, it's just this really beautiful film. And, um, captures the people of that neighborhood and, and it's, and it has a dreamy quality to it as well. The colors and the light in it. And I was sort of reminded of that when I was watching Losing Ground. Um, I don't know what it is about New York in the seventies and eighties, but it's just in, whether it's the more, um, suburban part or the rural part or the city area itself of New York City, there's something about the light, and, and there's just this dreaminess to films that are, um, whether they're documentaries or fiction films, something very, very beautiful about those films. And there's so much color and life and just vibrancy about this film. Like, when we see the neighborhood where Sarah and Victor have moved, it shows, I think it's Celia dancing. Like these men are playing music outdoors or like playing the drums or something. And Celia's just dancing and, and, um, 
it's really beautiful. And of course, Victor watches her and he dances along with her. And um, of course, while he's doing this, you know, Sarah's away working on her thesis and sort of doing her own thing. She visits a psychic, but she doesn't really believe what the woman has to say. Um, she goes to a church, actually, at one point. And I think her visiting, I think her visiting this church is really part of her search for ecstasy. That she is this woman who is searching for something. Searching for something that's missing from her life. And later on, she tells Victor that she wants magic. So I think there's this conflict in her where she's very smart, she's very intellectual, and yet she wants something that is beyond the intellectual, that is um, magical, which magic would be almost in contradiction with the intellectual, right? Um, but she wants something, I think, that is transcendent possibly and it seems like she hasn't really come in contact with it um i think she's in search of something that really takes her out of her mind that she's so in all the time and um she seems at times sort of disconnected from her body a bit and um so while she's off at the church and doing all this stuff victor goes up to the woman that he saw dancing celia and he wants to paint her. He wants to do a portrait of her. And of course, when Sarah meets her later on, she's definitely jealous um, of Celia. Celia's a Puerto Rican woman. And um, you can tell. You can tell Sarah is... And, and Celia's very sensual and very attractive and um she's she's a very beautiful woman and so you can tell that Sarah is insecure about it and she's jealous and um she's definitely worried about it and I think that Victor painting this portrait of Celia and spending time with Celia is part of why Sarah eventually decides that she's gonna be in her student one of her students senior thesis uh films um as I said, she's a philosophy professor and she has students and a student um, approaches her about being in his thesis film. And at first she doesn't want to do it, but then later on she decides to do it. And I think it's connected to seeing what Victor's doing. That Victor is painting this portrait of Celia. And um, I think that Sarah wants something of her own. I think she, I think she also wants to do something different, something that will take her out of her out of her mind that she's so stuck in, especially for the thesis, where she really obviously has to think very deeply about what she's writing about, and. Um, so I think she decides to do the film to just do something different, to do something unexpected. And this film is interesting. It's, quote, a take off on the theme of the tragic mulatto, unquote. So we have this film within a film, which adds another layer of complexity to losing ground, I think. And it seems to be a, this film within the film 
seems to sort of be commenting a bit on those stereotypes of black women and of black people in cinema. And this senior thesis film is really resisting those stereotypes. It's showing black people dancing and black people doing different things than you would expect. And um, it's about the tragic mulatto. So um, it's it's this very interesting um, aspect of the film, I think, um, that's really, I think, interrogating those stereotypes a bit. Now, Victor is not happy that she's doing this film because she has to leave their their house in upstate New York. She has to, I think, go back into the city or, or just somewhere else. And she's away for several days. She'll be away from home. She's going to stay with her mom. And he doesn't like that. He doesn't like that she's going to be away. And he, you can definitely tell that he is not happy about that. And at one point, she's talking about how she can't really lose herself in anything, that she's always in control. She's always in her head. She is, in her own words, quote, so very, in her own words, she thinks, quote, so very, very much. So she's aware of herself as this very thinking person. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being intellectual, of being smart. I would argue that we're going through a period in the United States now, in 2018, a period of anti-intellectualism, a period of anti-science, anti-thinking. If we think about what's happened with Facebook and the ads that ran on Facebook that were heavily skewed um, towards Donald Trump and against Hillary Clinton, um, these were terrible stories they weren't true um just lies and you know the the russian government was part of putting on facebook um it's really shocking in a way but i don't know if it surprises me and i absolutely am against what happened on facebook i do not like that these articles and these ads were shared and they obviously affected people throughout the country. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if they did sway quite a few voters. But at the same time, I think that if you had a populace that was intellectual, that was educated and able to think critically, maybe they wouldn't have fall, fallen for those ads and those articles. If you see an article that says Hillary Clinton is running a pedophile ring at a pizza shop, I need to ask you why you believe that. Why you're not checking the source because I tell you, I'm not going to believe anything if it's not on a reputable website. I think we need media literacy in this country desperately. Our lives are so concentrated on the internet. And when people see something on Facebook or they see something on Twitter, they think it's fact. They think it's true. What is the source of this information? Why why do you believe that Hillary Clinton is running a pedophile ring in a pizza shop? Why, does your, why do your alarm bells not go off when you read that? 
So on the one hand, I'm I'm very disturbed by what's happened, how basically social media has been hijacked to spread propaganda, to spread lies in favor of one candidate, and it basically led to one of the worst people being elected as president. I mean, a true terrible, terrible person, like... The, I mean, it was catastrophic that he got elected, right? I mean, it, I still can't comprehend it, that it's real. That when I turn on the news every day, he, he's president. Like, it's catastrophic. It's a complete disaster that this happened. So I'm so against these ads. I'm so against what happened. At the same time, I'm like, why did people believe it? Why did thousands or possibly millions of people see these outrageous headlines and not think to themselves well this looks really weird (laughs) that disturbs me just as much that what Russia was doing what these people were doing they were really taking advantage of the anti-intellectualism and the lack of maybe education in the country or they were taking advantage of the highly polarized environment I guess That if it's about the other side, you know, if it's about the candidate that you're not supporting, then it must be true. Um, I don't know. I always try to fact check. I always try to follow sources that are that are that are um, trustworthy. So I'm not against being intellectual at all. I think we need more of it. We need more critical thinking because people can't even go through their Facebook feeds and and um, weed out what is ridiculous and absurd and outrageous. They're just believing anything that they see and that they read, I guess. Um, we need critical thinking. We need thinkers, absolutely. But I do think that you can get to a point where you're so within your head all the time and you do get disconnected from other things. And I'm speaking from my own experience. I mean, I've been thinking a lot lately. I was just thinking this week about it. I actually messaged somebody about it, one of my friends, about how I'm so in my head all the time. I'm so in my mind. And um, we were also talking about how cinema is really the only way that we can lose ourselves or sort of escape our minds. And that's how it is for me. Although once I'm watching a film, I'm sort of thinking about it and and all of that. Her head in films, obviously. Um, it's what I'm thinking about and it sort of stays with me the way Losing Ground has. But I really related to Sarah's struggle where she wanted to be more connected with the sensual, with the ecstatic with possibly the transcendent that she was so in her mind that she couldn't get out. She wanted magic. And there's some kind of line in a streetcar named Desire where um, where the Vivian Lee character says something like that, like she wants magic. And that's what I want too sometimes. Like I want magic. And I guess for me, cinema is like a portal to that kind of magic. Um. So it's very interesting that she chooses to act in a film because watching a film for me is a way to 
connect with something transcendent or spiritual or emotional. And it takes me out of my head so much. And she loses control or loses herself by being an actress in a film. And I really think what actors do is that they connect with feelings and intuition and emotion that's what acting is to me. It's really about communicating the emotional. That's what actors are doing. Their matter is emotion. That is what they are working with. That's what they're trying to communicate and convey in a film through their faces, through the movement of their body, through all kinds of things. Um, so that's really important. And so when she chooses to act in this film, I think she's trying to connect to that, to the emotional part of her. And she also gets to dance in the film. And I think dance is another art form that's very intuitive and automatic and something that really connects you with your body and your sensuality. So she's much more sensual when she's in the film and when she's dancing much more connected to her body than her mind. Now, while Sarah is away filming this, Victor comes on to Celia and he kisses her. And so we can tell that Victor is starting to stray, that he's starting to possibly initiate an affair with Celia. Um, but he's still upset that Sarah's gone. And, um, Sarah tells her co-star, co-star's name, his name in the film is Duke Richards, but his real name is Dwayne Jones, and he's best known for his role in Night of the Living Dead. Um, and so they are co-stars in the film together, and they do the dancing scenes, and he plays, I guess he's playing her husband or her boyfriend in the film, and she tells him that the reason she chose to do the film is because it's not abstract and that everything she does is so abstract. And I thought that was a really great way to explain, I think, why she does this film. And Victor kisses Celia, but then in the film that Sarah is doing with Duke Richards, they have a kiss in the film. The director tells them to kiss really in the spur of the moment. He didn't tell them ahead of time that they were going to be kissing but um, they have a really good rapport, the two of them, and they do seem kind of connected, and he seems to sort of understand her, and so I don't think it was too hard for them to kiss. <laughs> um, so you can tell that both Sarah and Victor are sort of wandering. They're sort of straying from each other in their marriage, um, and there's this chasm, this distance that is opening up between between the two of them, really. Um, she brings Duke back home with her and there's a party with Sarah and Victor and then Duke and Celia. So all four of them are together and it sort of mirrors how Sarah was when she first met Celia, that she was really jealous. And then now Victor meets Duke and he's quite jealous. So again, there is huge turmoil in their marriage that they are straying, they're getting involved with other people, and then they're also sort of flaunting it in front of each other. 
like, oh, look who I'm spending more time with than I am with you. And um, so there's certainly a jealousy that crops up between on both sides. Sarah is jealous of Celia and Victor is jealous of Duke. And it's so interesting that night after they all meet, they sleep outside. They want to sleep under the stars. They're almost like kids. I mean, these are people who are probably close to 40. They're a little bit older. Maybe they're late 30s. And, um, but it's interesting how they kind of have these moments where they're very immature in a lot of ways. Um, but that night they sleep outside, like in these sleeping bags. And then they wake up in the morning and there's a pool where they're staying and like they jump in the pool with their clothes on Sarah does not jump in she doesn't go that far um, but Celia jumps in Victor jumps in all of them jump in except Sarah and um, Celia comes back out of the water and she gets into a sleeping bag and then Victor gets in and he gets out and he is like all over Celia he's trying to touch her he's trying to get in the sleeping bag with her and of course Sarah sees all this. It's so blatant. It's right in front of her. And she is just fuming. She's so upset about it. She's just um, infuriated by what he is doing. And that he's being so blatant about his interest in Celia and his infidelity. You can tell that she's very mad about it. Which she has every right to be. It was very shocking as I was watching. I was like... Why would you do this when your wife is right there and she can see what you're doing? So the finale of the film, the the last scene of the film, is really a scene in which art imitates life. Sarah is back filming the student thesis film with Duke. and um, And in the film, Duke is dancing with another woman. And Sarah, as her character, watches them, and then she shoots Duke with a fake gun. And Victor has shown up, and Victor sees all of this, and he watches the filming of the scene. And the last shot of the film is Sarah's anguished, crying face after she shot her on-screen husband, Duke. So she's she's acting in the film. She's playing this performance. But you can tell perhaps that this is also a very real emotion. That she is really heartbroken by what she feels like is happening to her marriage. And what's happening between her and Victor. And that perhaps the scene was also cathartic. And a vicarious way for her to express her anger. And her fury over what he's done by taking that gun. And you know pretending to shoot Duke. But I just thought that was a really interesting twist at the end of art imitating life. Of how this film within a film is really looking at film as artifice, right? And and critiquing some stuff as well. But um, I just thought that was an interesting twist of her enacting this revenge and this... Um, this emotion that she probably felt within herself and doing it through the character and through acting that acting sort of gives her access to express her emotions, to express her feelings, to connect with something beyond her intellect and to get out of her mind. Right. And, um, that scene sort of serves that purpose in a way. 
and it's sort of symbolic, you know, her shooting Duke. And perhaps it is not just the death of the character of Duke, but perhaps it's the death of her marriage. Um, we're not sure. And in her review of her vulture, um, Angelica Jade Bastian um, wrote this about that final scene. She says, quote, The film ends in a way few films about black life do, on a note of ambiguity. Black people are emotionally tangled, intelligent, stylish, hungry, barbed. In losing ground, they are neither saints nor sinners. They are achingly, beautifully human. Unquote. I love that. Um, I just, Angelica is a astounding writer. And I think that she put that really beautifully. And um, I absolutely agree that this film is restoring a sense of complexity and nuance and humanity to black people in the film. And a black woman in particular through the character of Sarah Rogers. So um, this film is just, it's stunning and I think it gives you a lot to think about in in the way that it looks at marriage, the way it looks at a black woman's subjectivity and her experience and her life and her reality and how she navigates it. Um, we see the complicated dynamics between ferociously intellectual, talented, um, creative people in Sarah and Victor and how they clash with each other and how marriage is often about compromise and also marriage people can really hurt each other they can really destroy each other in a marriage how many how many films do we really get this kind of portrait of a marriage I don't know and especially a marriage of two black people I don't know I can't name a lot of them this is a really complicated look at a relationship between a man and a woman. And um, so much of the film is about that push and pull between Sarah and Victor and the messiness of that relationship and um, what they want from each other and what they can't give each other. And I don't talk about marriage on this podcast. It's not part of my experience. So it's not something, I don't watch films about marriage. I don't watch films about couples and romance all that often. Um, so I'm doing my best with an analysis of this marriage, but I wouldn't say I have lots of revelations for you because it's not my expertise. But um, I thought the marriage aspect was really interesting. And I, I just sense that I don't know if that marriage is going to make it. I really don't. They really hurt each other. Although neither one of them went beyond the point of no return, you know, they didn't go into the territory of sex. They kissed other people, so perhaps it's still salvageable, but perhaps also in a marriage or in any relationship, you have to weigh the benefits to the cost. And is it worth continuing with this person if it's not working? And if it's just pain and it's just hurt that's happening, what can you salvage? Can you salvage anything? So I don't know. Um, 
But for me, what I didn't expect in this film, um, because I read the description, I was like, oh, okay, it's sort of about a marriage, you know. Um, But what I didn't expect to connect with so much was that conflict that Sarah feels between the intellect and the, I don't know what you call it, the intellectual and I guess the sensual in some way that that for me right now is a big struggle where I'm always in my head and I'm always thinking and I can never turn my mind off. And um, I think a lot of people can relate to that. Maybe some of you who are listening might be like that. Um, You might be always in your head and in your mind a lot. And um, that is a big part of this film is Sarah's search for something ecstatic, something sensual, something transcendent, something magical. And maybe she gets a taste of it through acting in the film. I think she does connect more to her body and her sensuality. And um, I loved how this film just resisted all those stereotypes. Sarah is not servile. Sarah is not subservient to anybody. Sarah is not sexualized. She's not hypersexualized the way black women's bodies tend to be. You know, think of the Venus Hottentot. That's another example of the way black women have really been hypersexualized um throughout our throughout time, throughout history really, not just in media and films. She is sensual in the film. Her sexuality is present. It's there. But it's just a natural part of her identity. It's not exploited. It's not used. Um, It's just part of her. And she expresses it when she wants to. And on her own terms. But it's not... There's no hypersexualization that happens. Which is a problem in general with films about women of color and white women. It's a problem. You know, of this sexualization of women. But... There's more of a sensuality, I think, to this film, especially when Sarah's dancing or things like that. She expresses that part of herself when she wants to. And um, the sapphire, the angriness. There is anger in the film. There's absolutely a important fury that um, that Sarah feels. But it's it's... What's the word? It's completely escaping me. <laughs> it's it's rightful. You know, it's like a righteous anger, I guess you could say. It's justified. That's the word I was trying to find. It's a justified anger that her husband is with this other woman and spending time with her. And I don't think she really knows that they kissed. But, um, but she, I think she feels something between them that's happening. So there's certainly an anger there. And that's okay. That's It's this very multi-dimensional portrait of a woman with all different facets of her. That she has moments of anger. She has moments of sensuality. She has moments of beauty. She has moments of all kinds of different moments. All kinds of facets to who she is. And, um, you know, we see her teaching her class and talking about existentialism. And then we see her with um, 
with Victor and something else I totally forgot to talk about that I really wanted to hit on was the um it's in my notes give me a woman I mean give me a moment sorry um Kathleen Collins what I haven't talked enough about there's not just the beautiful light and dreaminess and beautiful aesthetic of this film which is all Kathleen's and she did a tremendous job in creating this world that you get swept away by. But she really also revels in unique camera shots. I don't usually talk about the technical aspects of a film because I'm not educated in it. I don't know the different shots. And I know shot reverse shot. That's about all I know. But I did notice unique things that she was doing. Um, one of them was... Um, a character in the film has this monocle and um, we see through the monocle she uses the monocle this circle to frame a particular scene to actually frame Sarah <clears throat> we see Sarah standing a little bit like far away and then we see her through the monocle and I thought that was really unique sort of a unique shot and then there's this really interesting scene where Victor and Sarah are having dinner and they're sitting at opposite ends of the table and as they talk the camera goes I guess the camera pans slowly back and forth as they talk and I thought that was a really interesting um technique um so there's a playfulness about Kathleen's direction and creativity to it an innovative quality about it I think where she's setting up shots in a different way and um giving us different perspectives and things like that I, I really wanted to highlight that quickly before I end this episode so this is just a tremendous film so I took so much from it I I loved watching it I enjoyed it I hope that this episode inspires you to watch it or to seek it out or that it just gives you a sense of who Kathleen Collins was or if you've seen the film I hope that you enjoyed the episode I hope that you enjoyed my analysis and what I had to say about it I really can't say enough about Kathleen Collins I will say that I wish we'd had her longer just I said the same thing with Barbara Loden and Larissa Shapitko I wish we could I wish they could have lived longer although even if they had lived longer, they still would have encountered those structural inequities between men and women in the film industry. Would they have been able to make more films? Would they have been able to get financing? I mean, Larissa Shapitko was in like Russia. She was not in the U.S. film industry, but still men and women encounter different barriers and women have very specific barriers and as a black woman, Kathleen obviously had huge barriers. Um, I wish she could have made more films. I think she was creative and imaginative and ferociously um, talented and smart. And I love what she did in this film. And I wish she could have made more. And um, again, I just think about all the women's films that we haven't been able to see or, or the, that are trapped on VHS tapes and boxes the way Losing Ground was for decades. I mean, how fortunate are we that Nina Collins, Kathleen's daughter, you know, kept that box with her and kept those things and, and 
found milestone films to distribute it and preserve it we're so lucky but it makes you wonder all these women you know their work whether it's a film or a book or photography or paintings how many have been lost throughout time you know i think when we talk about the different art forms we should always talk about an absence that is there of all the missing women the missing um minorities people who encounter oppression and racism and homophobia and all of that there sh we should acknowledge like a blank space and an absence of what is missing from the canon what is missing from our knowledge of cinema history of literary history all the voices that never got to be heard all of the work that never got shared or distributed um we need to acknowledge that and going forward we need to write it we need to make it right and give more opportunities and give more platforms to people to people who are not you know straight white men <laughs> who are women and um minorities and um just different groups that have um been historically silenced um so I, I hope this episode was valuable and I hope I I hope I did this this film justice and Kathleen justice because that's all I wanted to do and that was my main goal so thanks so much for listening until next time keep watching great films bye for now <laughs>